to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. Now into our fifth year, 250 plus episodes aired from all people from walks of life, whether they are Pulitzer Prize winning authors to military generals to business titans, best-selling authors, people that have survived certain tragedies and lived to tell about it and taught us crucial life lessons, how to be better leaders, better friends, better parents, better people. Our podcast is dedicated to leadership, but we like to bring you relevant topics that help you be a better citizen, perhaps even a better global citizen. I've written several books about this podcast from HarperCollins, including Master Mentors Volume 1 and Volume 2 that are out now both in audio, video, print, yes, video, audio, video, print, and digital that highlight 30 guests from this podcast each year. The series is called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, Volume 3 coming out in the fall. I, I talked about how this podcast is also meant to make you a better citizen of the world, which is why we invited Peter Zion, today's guest, who is a renowned geopolitical strategist. He is a multi-volume best-selling author, speaker, and consultant, and the author of the new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. Someone you likely know from hundreds and hundreds of television, podcast, radio interviews. Peter Zion, welcome to On Leadership. It's great to be here. Glad you've joined us. You've been on a whirlwind tour because you are in demand, whether it be because of your book or your insights on the, the perhaps collapse of globalization. You are an expert in geopolitics, a lot to talk about today. Typically, this podcast focuses on how do people be a better leader? Most likely, often in their organization, whether they're a solopreneur or an entrepreneur, or perhaps they're a, a leader in a large organization at a mid-senior executive level, perhaps they're just leading their family. Today, our topic is going to be a little bit broader as we look at you know, what's happening around the world, whether you're an American or a German or a member of the Asia-Pacific Rim, whether you're in South America, I think people will have great interest in learning your insights around globalization. First, Peter, before I ask you questions, would you rewind and reorient our listeners and viewers to your life's journey and what makes you a credible opiner on this topic of globalization? <laughs> Uh, I have always been a maps guy. It's been my job to communicate to clients my entire professional year about how the world fits together, why it fits together the way it does. <laughs> and once you understand the tools of geography and demography, you can then have a much better idea of what is going to evolve or devolve in the weeks, years, months to come. And we are now standing at the precipice. Well, actually, no, that's not quite right. We, we've just kind of took a big step off the ledge in the last couple of years. Uh, the globalized system, as we understand it, is breaking down, and it's my job to help figure out what that means for different companies in different parts of the world and different economic sectors. I mean, the book is a masterpiece. I, with my wife, Stephanie, we have three sons that are 8, 11, and 12. And now every night, my oldest son, who is in seventh grade, his name is Thatcher, after my hero, Margaret Thatcher, uh, we read two to three pages in your book. Some nights we're talking about feces, human feces. Some nights we're talking about <laughs> geopolitics or currency or hunters and gatherers. And my son is learning perhaps more in your book than he is from his very expensive private school. Hopefully the headmaster isn't listening. Uh, the book really is a remarkable education on kind of how we got to where we are. The book's been out for about half a year. What's changed since you wrote this book titled The End of the World is Just the Beginning? 
Well, the biggest change happened within a week of me turning in the final draft at the start of the Ukraine war. Uh, luckily, the publisher allowed me to go in and change a few verb tenses. So it was instead, you know, Russia will do this inevitably and almost imminently into, you know, Russia started this last February and here's where we are. Uh, the key thing to remember, though, is that the prediction of the Ukraine war wasn't just from this book, it was from previous books as well. And when you have deglobalization really kick in, it's only one of three conflicts. So we do have two others that are just around the corner that are going to be just as disruptive. Which would be what? Uh, now that the United States is no longer in the Persian Gulf in any meaningful way, the Saudis and the Iranians are edging ever closer to a direct fight, and that's going to catch half of the world's globally traded oil in the crossfire. And then whether it's because the Chinese lash out or implode, we're going to have another conflict in the East Asian rim with the Chinese and the Japanese being the primary belligerents. And then that's the end of global manufacturing as we understand it. Uh, I'm going to skip to a topic and talk about China for a moment, and then we'll sure. talk about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, in the book, I, the book is a, 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 an invaluable treatise on why, why things have happened, why we got to where we are, whether you agree or disagree. It's a great uh, uh, lineage of kind of society. You, you talk about NAFTA, right, the North American Free Trade Agreement that, of course, not, isn't in place as we know it any longer per se. You talk about the why and the implications, and I'm going to skip forward. And you share on page 360. I'm going to feed you the paragraph so you don't have to know what's Thank on page you. 360. <laughs> you, you were talking about the impact of America after NAFTA. And then you pivot to China, and you say, that's not how China works. The Chinese make everything that they are technologically capable of making using subsidies, technology, technology theft, and diplomatic strong-arming to expand the list of products whenever possible. And unlike the United States, many of those products are for export. Put another way, the products that the Chinese make are the ones that, for whatever reason, the Americans have chosen not to make. And then you go on and talk about, you know, Huawei and the other companies like that. And this podcast is meant to be a global podcast. I'm not pro or anti-Chinese. I've been to the country four or five times on business and appreciate much about them. I'm also not naive to know that as a global superpower, they have a very uh, um, strong intent on taking their place um, at the top of the food chain, if you will. Talk a bit about what the world needs to know about China and how soon do you think they're going to become the dominant player economically and militarily if, in case, if indeed that's where you think it's headed? Well, let me give you the punchline first. Uh, this is China's last decade as a coherent nation state. So we're going to be very soon talking about Chinese weakness and the effect of China's disintegration. But let me give you three big reasons. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> like that chapter that you quoted, uh, there is nothing that is made in China that can't be made anywhere else. And because their demographics have been aging so aggressively for so long, their labor costs are now about three times what the labor costs of Mexico are. And Chinese labor is not as highly skilled as Mexican labor. So we've already seen the hemorrhaging out of the industrial space, most notably to Mexico and Vietnam, but some to the United States as well. <laughs> In fact, the United States is competing on some of these sectors that we honestly had given up on, because now with the shale revolution, our energy prices are the lowest in the world, our electricity prices are the lowest in the world. So we're in this weird world where the United States excels at the high end, and the low end at the same time, while the Mexicans take care of everything in the middle. It's a very successful 
system and it's out competing the Chinese on most metrics. Uh, second, the Chinese do not have the naval capacity to push out from their own coast. Yes, they've got a lot of vessels, but only about 10% of them can sail more than 1,000 miles from the coast. And that assumes no one's shooting at them and they're going slow to save fuel. Really, the operational range for the Chinese Navy is only about 300 miles. So they can't get past Vietnam, much less to the Persian Gulf if there's an energy crisis. And then third, back to those demographics. Since the book came out, the Chinese have been updating bit by bit their census data, and they've now come to the public conclusion that they overcounted their population by in excess of 100 million people, with all of those missing millions aged 40 and under. If that is true, and I can't imagine that they'd be bad-mouthing themselves to make themselves look good, I mean, the logic of that's weird. If that's true, we are talking about the fastest workforce and population decline ever in human history. And we don't even have an economic model as a species for what will work with a Chinese system just five, 10 years from now, because they won't have enough people to do the work and they certainly won't have enough people to consume. And that leaves them completely dependent upon whether the United States wants to import stuff from them. And it's become very clear in our politics under both Trump and Biden that the answer to that is no. Peter, what is the average uh, citizen of the world to learn from China's uh, abrupt change in their COVID policy, from perhaps the most draconian in the world to almost overnight some of the most liberal? W what are we to learn about the trajectory of their politics and their economy and their, their, their ability to be either a pariah state or a partner in a global economy? In a word, capriciousness. Uh, Chairman Xi of the CCP has now gutted the system so wholly that there is no longer any institution within the, the system that has any authority aside from him, his person. Uh, the CCP is a shell of what it used to be. The analysts are gone. The intelligence officials who are intelligent are gone. He has executed or imprisoned or intimidate into silence everyone within the PRC is capable of conscious thought. It's a one-man show now. And so policy reflects what he says on any given day, and then the bureaucrats take it one of two directions. Number one, they wait to be personally told what to do, so we get scoliosis. Or two, they're zealots and they think they're doing what he wants, and that's how you get people out in EV suits. Uh, dusting runways with uh, virus aside in order to disinfect them during COVID. Uh, so the ability of this country to carry out functional policy is now gone. And it's down to the whims of one man with a bureaucracy that doesn't know what to do with that. We're seeing organizational failure in real time. Do you see uh, China becoming an American ally more so in the future as the demographics and the ec economics of our positions change? It's something worth considering because the whole idea of how we fought the Cold War is we created globalization to patrol the ocean so that anyone could ship anything anywhere and interact with any partner and access our market. That's how the world rebuilt itself after World War II. And that was the deal that Nixon handed to Mao himself in China in order to get the Chinese to switch sides in the Cold War. And it worked. But China's too big now and the rest of the world is too aged now. And that deal was never going to last uh, much longer than 1992. Honestly, it's a surprise it's lasted this long. Xi, as the leader of a one-man state, theoretically does have the power to completely change course. 
But the sacrifices that China would have to give to the United States economic and strategically to attract American interest in some sort of new deal, I don't see that happening. We're going through our own period of isolationism here in the United States, and China bashing has become a very strong bipartisan point of agreement in American politics. It's one of the few. It's also one of the things that's led to Asian American hate, right? I have many friends in that community that fear for their lives, fear for the lives of their parents and family and friends because of uh, attacks on Asian Americans that come from misinformation or just outright prejudice. Uh, do you see that on the rise? Do you think Americans are becoming more charitable about differentiating between enemies and our, our friends within our country? I mean, where would you go with that? Well, something to keep in mind about Americans, especially white Americans, is they have a real hard time telling different ethnic groups apart. If you remember back to 9-11, most of the people who were getting attacked were Hispanic because Americans didn't know the difference. So anytime you see actions by Americans in that vein, I, I, you got you to gotta look through it. You got to look at that very, very closely. It's ignorance. So I, I think that's probably a better word to use than hatred or intolerance. And one of the things we have seen that has really impressed me of late, well, let me give you two things. Number one, with the Ukraine war, American charity towards Ukraine has just caught me off guard. The degree of effort, not just by the government, but by private citizens and firms to stand with the Ukrainians. And second, say what you will about the rest of his politics. One of the great successes of the Trump administration was convincing Americans, especially conservative Americans, that Mexicans were part of the family. So we are capable of these huge leaps forward in terms of social unity, and we usually don't even acknowledge it until 30 years later. I must have heard you wrong, because my experience was not that President Trump convinced conservatives or liberals alike that Mexicans were part of our family. I would have felt like his narrative was he demonized them. He did during the campaign, and then within one year of being in office, he was talking about Mexicans no longer as bad hombres and drug runners and rapists, but as some of the the greatest adherents to the American dream. And under Trump, believe it or not, relations between Mexico and the United States were the best they have ever been in the history of either republic. Fact is way stranger than fiction. Fascinating analysis. Uh, North Korea. How, how, how is it still the way it is? I mean, every year I tell my sons, oh yeah, it's like got like 30 days left. There's no possible way this could continue. The sister is on the rise and such. How much longer will North Korea be as we know it? Okay, well, this is going to be guesswork because everyone's spies have been killed. Uh, But best guess. You mean North Korea has killed all of the foreign spies in the Everyone's spy, even the Chinese. So everyone is just kind of making an educated guess here, and more or less everyone's on the same page, but no one's really sure. So the best guess is Kim Il-sung, that's the grandfather, the guy who fought the yeah. Japanese, yeah. founded the country. Um, when, his, when he passed on and the power went to Kim Jong-un, this, or Kim Jong-il, you know, this guy, the crazy one, uh, Kim Jong-il was raised in North Korea on the propaganda, and as a result, it broke him, and the guy is clinically nuts. So is the entirety of the second generation. So the remaining generals from the first generation were like, oh, holy crap, we we did not mean for this to happen. So they sent the whole third generation, including Kim Jong-un, out into the world to learn how it really works. So Kim Jong-un actually went to school in Switzerland. 
And then when his father died, he comes back at the tender age of 26 to take over. And so he is dealing with an internal problem because he's got this first generation who's tough as nails and control the military. And he's got the second generation that's just batshit crazy. And so he's trying to figure out how he can winnow the ranks down without triggering a civil war. And his solution was to beat his chest a lot to satisfy them all. That got the attention of Donald Trump because Donald Trump assumed it was all about him. And that's where the whole fire and fury Twitter war came from. So he sees an opportunity. My button is Kim bigger Jong than your button. Exactly. So Kim Jong-un is like, you know, tweets out, holy crap, I didn't mean for this to happen. This is not what I meant. Um, my button's the perfect size. I'm not going to make it any bigger. And uh, thank you very much. Have a nice day. Uh, that led to the summit, believe it or not, because Trump was non-traditional. And as soon as the Chinese found out that there was going to be a summit, they dragged Kim Jong-un to, to Beijing to yell at him. And when it became apparent, they couldn't talk him out of it because he was planning on using Trump as a way to you know, balance power within North Korea. Uh, they put Kim Jong-un in a little kitty chair and they put Xi in his big booster chair behind his big imperial desk so he could lecture down to the wayward province. And the Chinese ate it up. They loved the propaganda. So Kim Jong-un goes back now convinced that the Chinese are all idiots and he absolutely has to have the summit with Trump. And so it does go forward. Best guess now is that between the tete-a-tete the -tete with Trump and between the, the cold relations with China, that Kim Jong-un really has succeeded in getting the first and second generations under control. And he has his own little one-man show and he is secure. And if you'll notice, a lot of the threats have died down in the last couple of years. And my favorite little bit is earlier this year, in the, while the Ukraine war is raging, they started acting up again. And Secretary of State Blinken said, fine, fine. We'll come to North Korea. We'll talk about whatever you want, no preconditions. And the North Koreans have been deathly silent ever since because they caught the car and they just don't know what to do with it. <laughs> You've talked multiple times about sea lanes. We're going to speak about Ukraine in just a few moments. How vital is the sea still? I mean, you don't think about the Navy very much, but I mean, how vital is the protection, the military protection of sea lanes to our future existence, to commerce, to healthcare, to geopolitical balance? Uh, and who's going to win that? Three quarters of global agricultural shipments, manufacturing supply chain steps, and energy shipments travel the ocean blue. And two thirds of all of those shipments travel the ocean blue in East Asia. Without freedom of the seas, the global system as we understand it doesn't just die, it just has no possibility of existing. And you are talking then about not just mass famine, but the mass deindustrialization of large portions of the planet, with China being first in line. Has anyone ever called you an alarmist? Usually they're not that kind. Are you an alarmist? <laughs> I like to think I'm a realist. We've been living in this wonderful period since 1945, where the Americans created globalization as a way of inducing allies to join the cause against the Soviets, and it worked. But never forget that for the United States, this was never an economic plan. It was a security play, and it, it worked. But that made everyone's economies dependent upon how the Americans view their own security. And after 1992, our view of our security has changed. 
We don't see the Cold War as this overwhelming threat anymore. Even with the Russians being back on the war path in Ukraine, that hasn't changed American minds on globalization. If anything, it's reinforced it. Because if you look at all the deals that the Russians are cut, I'm sorry, but if you look at all the deals that the Americans are cutting with the Japanese, the Europeans, and everyone else on the war, every single one of them is 100% purely security. None of them are guns for butter deals where there's some sort of Bretton Woods or globalization two on offer. In fact, every trade tariff, every trade war, that Donald Trump initiated, the Biden administration has doubled and tripled down on except for one, one out of over 80, we're done. And if we're done, we are honestly just kind of marking time until something in this system breaks. The Ukraine war very well could be that thing. From your perspective, why did Russia start the war? Assuming they started the the war. Assuming they started the war. Why did Russia start the war with Ukraine? Well, Russia absolutely started the war, just in case there was any doubt there. I got to look at the Russian space. Uh, the, the, the territory that they live in from Central Europe out into Siberia is some of the world's worst farmland. Uh, you can grow one crop of short season wheat and that's about it. So the Russians have never been able to have a national road network. They've never had the money. Everything has to be moved by rail. And so their forces move very, very slowly. They have to literally walk places. And if you look at the area around where they live, there are a lot of open territories that are useless. They're near desert, they're near Arctic. And then beyond that are some actual barriers, places where there are deserts or seas or mountains. So the Russian strategy going back over three centuries has been to advance out of their kind of crappy land through the really crappy land on their shoulders and then get to those geographic barriers where you can't run a panzer division through it. And then they forward position those very, very slow moving troops on the access points between those barriers. Unfortunately for Ukraine, they're not in those barriers, but they're on the way to two of them. So from the Russian point of view, what's going on in Ukraine is like phase five of an eight part plan. You know, the Russians have done this multiple times in other countries in the former Soviet world since 1992. And if they succeed in Ukraine, they will push on. And the next line of countries that would allow them to actually control those access points include Romania and Bulgaria, I'm sorry, Romania and Poland, both of which are NATO countries. Peter, we're taping this interview the first week of February. And the news will have you think in the last 24 hours that Russia is gearing up for an unprecedented offense into Ukraine, whether it's a conscription of bodies, humans, citizens, prisoners, whether it's, you know, working through their friendly allies that may border with Ukraine, whether it's, you know, ground troops or air defenses that this, this conflagration has yet to see its greatest horror. In the last few days, Germany and other NATO countries, including the US and Poland, have finally agreed to put you know, um, serious tanks on the ground. And in the last couple of hours, we've even heard that you know, a serious, serious impact is coming. And some may just watch it on TV, but if you don't think the price of your groceries in the grocery store every day isn't a direct correlation, or the profits of Exxon or Chevron or other companies isn't a, you know, and correlated, correlated to what's going on, you'd be naive. Uh, what should we expect to happen in the coming weeks and months, not just with Russians and Ukrainians, but how it impacts the rest of us? Is NATO going to get sucked into this? What is China going to do? What is India going to do or not going to do? You hear that Japan has now just gone to the UN and said, you know, 
We're not going to tolerate it. Are they really like saber rattling or do they have serious intent to help? Uh, look into your crystal ball, my friend. What's going to happen? I was counting. I think that was 18 questions. Let me do my best. Answer them all. <laughs> all right. Let's start with the, the straightforward bit. Uh, the Russians massively outnumber the Ukrainians. And the, they have a lot more men to lose, and they have a hot, lot higher tolerance for casualties. So the two or three to one ratio that the Ukrainians have been inflicting uh, on the Russians in terms of casualty ratios is wildly insufficient if the Ukrainians are going to win. They need to achieve a series of mass fatality events that kills at least minimum 500,000 Russian troops in a very short period of time. That is very difficult to do. Uh, they also because of the numbers disconnect, can only win if they win on quality and above all, mobility. And they haven't been able to do that this winter because it has been freakishly warm in Ukraine all winter. The ground never froze solid. It's still about 40 degrees today on the 1st of February uh, in Kiev. And that means that all of the fields are not frozen solid, they're mud. And they can't. the Ukrainians can't maneuver in the mud, so they can't use their superior mobility in order to encircle, cut off, and dice up the Russian troops. This is buying the Russians times to reinforce. They've started a second, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, mobilization. And by the time we get to May 1, which it will be spring and mud season will be over, the Ukrainians will have more troops with more training and better equipment, but the Russians will have thrown an extra half a million men into the fight. So we're going to find out very, very soon, certainly before the end of June, which of these battle strategies is going to be more effective. And the numbers absolutely favor the Russians. Because remember, unless the Ukrainians can inflict eight to one casualty ratios, they still lose. But if they can pull that off and completely break Russian military power, then it's game on. We will know by mid-June just how who's going to win this war. Now. Step two, the impact that this has on all those economic issues you were bringing up. The Russians are a major producer or processor of any number of industrial and agricultural materials that just don't have good substitutes anywhere. On the agricultural front, potash is the most important one. In terms of industry, I'd say chromium and nickel are probably near the top because you can't make steel without them. All of this stuff has been maintained, all this infrastructure has been maintained not by the Russians, but by Westerners who are no longer there. A lot of the industrial infrastructure dates back to the 60s, and we are already seeing industrial accidents that are so big that they are not, they can't be seen from orbit, they can be detected from orbit because the explosions are so big. It's happening in energy and natural gas, it's happening in agricultural production, it's happening in chemicals. So whether it happens in three months or three years, we need to count on most of the industrial materials that the Russians send to the rest of the world going away regardless of who wins this war. And that makes a lot of things all very difficult for a lot of other players. Because, because, the, because, they, because the global boycott, if you will, the sanctions will maintain in perpetuity regardless of who wins this war? I think that's safe, but the Russians are losing the ability to produce it anyway. So even if you're willing to go around the sanctions, and a lot of these products like, say, nickel or potash, they're not under sanction. It's just people refusing to use them. And now they're going away. Uh, fertilizer output from the Russian space is already down by 20 to 40 percent, which, which, depending on which nutrient you're looking at. This is something the world is not ready for. If we really are going to reindustrialize the United States, we need a lot of steel. 
if we are really going to electrify everything, we need four times as much nickel and 10 times as much lithium. We can't do that normally. We've never as a species been able to double the volume of any material that we were already had in use within a decade. And we have to do it for 14 things for the, the green everything program. And we're gonna now do it without the Russians. So we are looking at significant corporate breaks in terms of the supply for a lot of basic materials. The ones I'm most concerned about by far are those fertilizer materials. We, 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 were, we were very lucky in 2022. Farmers the world over had great weather and everyone had a backup fertilizer supply in their back pocket. That's gone. And mother nature is never that nice two years in a row. So this is probably the beginning of a significant year of food shortages on top of the industrial shortages. Peter, is the world uh, going to allow <laughs> is the war is the world going to allow Russia to win the war with Ukraine? Not according to the U.S. president, by the way. Well, what, you remember that first week of the war when that giant convoy was moving south from Belarus to Kiev, and we thought it was all over on like day two. And then on day four, it stopped because they forgot fuel. And on day seven, all the soldiers walked back to Belarus because they also forgot food. Uh, everyone I know in NATO kind of came to the same conclusion that the Russians don't know how to fight. They, it's not that they've forgotten the lessons of the Soviet period. It's they've forgotten the lessons of the czar. They're almost starting from scratch. And if you put NATO up against the Russians directly, you're gonna get a thousand to one casualty ratios. And that, that made no one happy because if the Russians can win in Ukraine, we know they're coming for Poland and Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Romania, and those are NATO countries. But and they're not, have that they're not clash. coming across those countries. NATO isn't going to allow that. Ukraine right. is not a NATO, if, NATO member. But if we get that, if, if Ukraine loses and we get that head-to-head -head Russian NATO fight, we know we will wipe the floor with them but the Russians see this as a fight for their existential existence yeah. and they will use every card they have. And the Russians see that or Putin sees that? The Russians. Uh, there have not been protests in Russia, not just because right. the propaganda has right. dug into the, the Russians. He has more Russians, support than the West thinks he does. In a lot side. more. There's yeah. not a challenge for, to him from within. And if you think back to the first mobilization, a million men fled the country, there were no protests. The Russians are broadly in favor of the war. They would just prefer not to fight in it. How much money did you invest today in cryptocurrency? Negative zero. <laughs> Talk to us about the, the sustainability of the crypto markets. Um, let me hit this from a slightly different angle, knowing that I'm just going to get a lot of hate mail no matter what I say. Uh, we have been living in a capital bubble for the last 10 years because the baby boomers, kids have moved out but they hadn't yet retired. And that put a lot of money in a lot of things and a lot of a lot of things to happen at a faster speed than they would have otherwise. And whenever you have a big capital bulge, a lot of strange stuff happens. The last big capital bulge gave us the financial crisis and subprime. Before that, we had the economic expansion that led to the oil shocks. I see crypto is wrapped up in this bubble. And now that the money is going away and crypto has to stand on its own, it's failing. It's failed and kind of come back and find its place. It's now like a pariah currency or it'll find its right mix, among, mix amongst our lives. I don't see any use case for crypto 
whatsoever. I detect I some ambiguity that with that. Can you clarify your statement there? <laughs> it has no use case. It has no value. It is no store of value. It's not used in exchange. It won't be used in exchange. It can't supplement for a currency. Uh, every case that has been put out there for why crypto should exist has already failed. And really, we've just got the zealots out there now. And they are now going to all send me hate mail. Again. What is the last NFT you bought? <laughs> you know, I got to say, I was kind of curious about those Trump ones that came out, but no, I am not an NFT guy. <laughs> uh, talk to us about the metaverse. Oh, my God. Yeah, sorry, I'm not a creeper. <laughs> I think it's more deep than that. Tell me, what? <laughs> thanks for the levity uh, and drama. Uh, what do you need most people to know that they don't know about how the world really works. Globalization allowed us to farm things out. Everyone focused on what they did best and most efficiently, even if they were tilting the balance like the Chinese did with, with subsidies in order to make it happen. That meant we've got sprawling supply chains that, that round the world. You know, Most manufacturing processes, especially in electronics, touch at least a dozen different countries. We now have to unwind all that. And we have to put it on a more stable system with shorter supply chains that are closer to home. And NAFTA is well set up to do this. But this transition period means we have to double the size of our industrial plant in just five years if the goal is to still have the products that we're used to today. That's hugely inflationary. But think about what it means, doubling the size of the industrial plant having locals produce products for locals, partnering with the Mexicans and the Canadians to make it happen at scale. This is going to be the greatest economic growth in the history of all three of the NAFTA countries. And when it's done, we will largely be immune to international shocks because all the work will be done here. This is a good story, but it's not a straight road from here to there. Are you kind of suggesting that you've mapped the collapse of globalization. I mean, is, is, it just seems like, it seems intuitively to me that the global economy is necessary for all countries to thrive. But I it's think essential. Geography's hard. Most countries don't have a geography that's particularly economically rich. And in the pre- Or politically, politically protective, like the US, right? Right. I mean, in the pre-globalized world, unless you had iron ore and steel and food and oil, you'd never industrialized. With globalization, now you only needed one or just a bunch of labor that you could use to buy all of it. Uh, globalization made the world safe for civilian corporate traffic the world over. You take that away and you're now trading on your own internal market, your own security environment, your own economic geography, and the world we're going to go to is going to be a, have a lot more in common with the 1840s than the 1940s because everyone is industrialized and modernized, but they're dependent on products coming from half a world away that just aren't going to be there. Now, if that's a car, that's bad. If that's wheat, that's worse. Peter, you would suggest that as a civilization, we're entering a time of maybe unrecognizable military conflict with supersonic missiles and nuclear capability. Who knows what Iran has? Who knows what North Korea has? What's it going to look like in the future? 
I am concerned about a series of brush fire wars as countries try to take matters into their own hands. But a lot of the countries that we've been convinced of that are significant long-term threats, most notably China and Iran, really are the countries that are going to suffer the most from globalization's fall. Uh, they really do need American over overwatch in order to make sure that they can import and export. And without that, they are utterly incapable of managing that themselves. I interviewed Ray Dalio, of course, the billionaire investor and uh, prolific writer of history, right? How he's made his money is understanding patterns of humankind. His books, I think, are extraordinary. Uh, Ray talks a lot about, you know, kind of the arc of, 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 of power, right? You know, the, the, the Dutch and the British and the Americans. Do you see America's superiority um, sunsetting? Uh, not anytime soon. What, what Dalio got wrong is the reason that these countries did well in the time frames that they did is that their geography matched up to the premier technologies of the day. So as before deep water navigation, the most powerful country was the country with the best maritime internal transport system. That was Ottoman Turkey. But then deep water navigation kicked in. And so the center of power shifted over to Iberia because they were on the end of a peninsula. And it was easier for the Portuguese and the Spanish to push out through the water and conquer the world than to go through Europe. Uh, eventually, that technology migrated to places that could use it better, like the Brits. And then the Brits developed industrialization. And industrialization allowed them to bring a gun to a knife fight for a century. But then that technology moved to an area with better capital density that could use it better. That was Germany and the United States. So it's not that he's wrong about those arcs, but it's not like they have a use by date. It's a question of what the technologies of the day tend to be and which geography can use those best. I am at the moment not convinced that the digital age is a fundamentally sufficient break from the industrial age to trigger something new. But even if it is something to consider that 90% of all the silicon that goes into all of the world's microchips comes from North Carolina. Other than the burgeoning pile of cash under your mattress, what are you excited about? <laughs> well, uh, it's not in cryptos and it's not in NFTs. It's definitely not in crypto. It's no. not in stocks of, you know, Russian companies. So what are you excited about? I mean, I'm bummed that globalization is ended or ending. It's it's created the, the best period in human history. But I'm really excited to see what's next, because if you've got North America really fundamentally remaking itself in less than a decade, that is going to change the American story and the Mexican story and the Canadian story. And that's going to take us some unpredictable ways. Hopefully, most of them are going to be good. And on the back side of this, after everything cracks apart, you know, fast forward 10, 15, probably closer to 30, 35 years, and we'll probably have a better battery system and we'll have a better transmission system. And then we can go back out in the world and basically remake it from the ground up. It's a great time to be alive if you're in the right spot. If you go missing, who did it? Oh, definitely the Russians. <laughs> Peter, Peter Zion, thank you for joining us today. Your book is a New York Times bestseller. The end of the world is just beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization. I appreciate your clarity and point of view today. I think you've given us all a lot to think about. The book is a masterpiece. My son and I are enjoying reading it, learning a lot about you know civilizations hundreds of years ago and why we are where we are today. I appreciate your gift of time and investment in our listeners and viewers today. Thank you, sir. Not a problem. 
And we'll see you back here next week for, we hope, we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>